This is Authorised Access, a podcast from Microsoft Australia and New Zealand about the cybersecurity challenges facing businesses today. On the show, you'll hear from leaders in cybersecurity from Microsoft and beyond as we explore high-level strategies to help confront risk in your organisation. We are living today in a multi-cloud, multi-platform, multi-environment world. It is more critical than ever that we keep our business safe. I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Authorized Access. As you've come to expect, we have the very best guests of cybersecurity joining us, and today is no exception. We're joined by Helene Leggett, who is not only a cybersecurity expert, but also a lawyer for the Supreme Court in Victoria. We are looking forward to having this conversation with Helene about critical infrastructure security, including the security of critical infrastructure legislation that has been recently developed here in Australia. We also have another very special guest with us, Farah Chamsuddin. She's one of our industry cybersecurity leads and has extensive experience in governance, risk and compliance. Welcome to the show, Farah. Thank you, Kenny. It's great to be here. In this episode, we will hear from Helene around the different challenges that organizations face in meeting the obligations of the Critical Infrastructure Act, as well as we can explore opportunities of how to uplift the security posture of these critical infrastructure environments. And on that note, let's get into it. Before we get into the conversation with Helene, we recently had a Microsoft Secure Conference. There were a lot of updates and a lot of announcements, including some very exciting announcements about artificial intelligence that came through. Dan, can you share some of the Entra and Endpoint Management announcements that came through at Microsoft Secure? Kenny, you're not wrong. With all of the announcements that happened at Microsoft Secure, a few of those were around Microsoft Entra. And what we announced was the introduction of new governance controls and policy protections to help better secure identities and the resources that they access. I'm going to go through some of the key highlights around Entra Identity Governance and Verified ID. Some of the new protections that were being introduced is to help secure sign-in, especially around conditional access authentication strengths. So admins now have the ability to set policy on the strength of multi-factor authentication based that's needing to be used on the sensitivity of the applications that are being used or the user is trying to access. This really gives a whole lot more scenarios and gives you more of that granular ability to decide who is connecting to the applications. The other thing that we're looking at is preventing lateral movement. There was a lot more strict enforcement of localization policies that let resource users provide continuous access evaluation and immediately revoke tokens that violate Likertian policies. So this is really good to prevent that lateral movement. The other things is around new dashboards, and we love our dashboards and, and viewing those. And this is being around how to help close policy gaps. So when we're looking at conditional access, there is now a summary that talks about the policy posture, unprotected users and apps, and also giving more insights and recommendations based on sign-in activities. So really trying to close those gaps. As I want to close out is with Microsoft Intune. So the Intune suite was launched on March 1st, 2023, and it's the unification of a series of mission-critical endpoint management solutions within Intune. The features include a few different areas around zero trust, and it's to helping fortify your cybersecurity safety. 
this suite is now using a lot of, as you said before, Kenny, around AI for proactive user experience protections. And it's to reduce the complexity and costs through this automation. There is a deep integration of Microsoft security services in the Intune suite, and it's going to help empower IT to look at the controls and elevation of Windows standard users with Microsoft Intune endpoint privilege management. The other thing that we've been looking at is at the help desk to enable employee connections with remote help. And this works across a different number of applications. So access from mobile devices, bring your own devices, or as you've come to expect, the Microsoft Windows assets. So that was a quick touch on Microsoft Entra and endpoint management. But Farah, you're going to cover off some things around threat protection and cloud security. What was announced at Microsoft Secure around there? Absolutely, Dan. There has been a number of really exciting announcements, starting with the Microsoft Security Copilot. Security Copilot combines OpenAI large language model with a security-specific model from Microsoft. So this model, in turn, incorporates a growing set of security-specific skills and is informed by Microsoft's unique global threat intelligence and more than 65 trillion daily signals. Another key announcement has been around Microsoft Defender Threat Intelligence, which is now available to customers directly within the Microsoft 365 Defender. It's already integrated with Microsoft Sentinel and now has an API to help enrich incidents, automate incident response, and work with a broad ecosystem of security tools. With this advancement, you get one of the board's best threat intelligence integrated with the tools that you use every day. On collaboration security, we are extending the Microsoft 365 Defender protection to Microsoft Teams, and this allows organizations now to address the increasingly attack vector with phishing attacks. Today, we are extending beyond the existing SafeLinks capability to enable users to report suspicious messages, automatically purge unsafe messages, and integrate administration experiences into the M365 Defender. With Teams and Microsoft 365 Defender, employees now can balance between being productive as well as being safe and secure. Moving to the cloud security side of things, with Defender Cloud Security Posture Management, or CSPM, is now generally available to help organizations get an end-to-end view of risks and prioritize recommendations and remediation activities across their multi-cloud environments across Azure, AWS, and GCP. And finally, on Defender for Storage, now offers sensitive data discovery and malware scanning to address threats of critical storage in the cloud. With these new scanning capabilities, organizations are able to prevent infiltration attempts with near real-time detection of metamorphic and polymorphic malware across cloud data. And that was my update on threat protection and cloud security. Kenny, we have been hearing about the innovation in information security and privacy space as well. Can you share some of the key announcements on Purview and Priva? Thank you, Farah. Look, particularly excited about the security co-pilot capability that you just shared. And I just wanted to very quickly expand on that. So security co-pilot, that capability is starting with security operation centers right now. So it's going to be available for Sentinel. But our plan absolutely is to expand that capability out to Entra and Endpoint Management and Data Security and Priva. So on Data Security and Priva, look, I just wanted to quickly double click on what data security means. So data security is essentially Microsoft information protection, data loss prevention, 
and insider risk management, right? So when we say data security, those are the three capability sets that we're actually referring to. So first and foremost, in February 2023, we announced adaptive protection as a part of Microsoft Purview. So essentially what this does is it actually balances data security with people-centric intelligence. So leveraging insider risk management, it first determines what are those risky users in the organization. Then it tailors the DLP controls around these users. And then finally, it actually applies the DLP policies, right? So now based on the risk profile of a user, the DLP policies are adapted to that. So for example, if it's a risky user, the DLP policy might dictate that any content copied to a USB drive should be prohibited. It's really powerful capability. So then the second capability we announced was uh, proactive protection for Windows devices. So the significance of this is that now, irrespective of what content lives in a file on a Windows device, the entire content will be scanned to determine whether that content constitutes anything that is sensitive, right? So all those content types or the sensitive information types, they'll be looked at in the file to see whether the file actually contains any of those sensitive information types, including some of the ML-based searching we also do, irrespective of when the file was created or when the file was modified. Suffice it to say, if there is a file on a Windows device that actually has sensitive content, it will be picked up and then the DLP policies can be enforced on that. So then building on that theme, the third set of capabilities we actually announced was an expansion of these DLP controls. So endpoint devices, obviously, Windows devices, they'll be protected thoroughly. We're also extending this protection to virtualized environments, for example, Citrix and Windows Virtual Desktop and AWS and so on and so forth, including Hyper-V. So that entire attack surface is protected against from a data loss prevention perspective. One of the features that's very requested quite frequently is protecting content on network shares. So we're actually now extending the DLP support to network shares as well. So that actually does offer now that comprehensive protection across your Windows devices, your Mac devices, your virtualized environments, and your network shares as well. So a couple of final capabilities I wanted to call out. So in the purview portal, now there is a device onboarding tab where you can basically see the device health and you can actually see the device misconfigurations, right? So this really simplifies the process for admins to determine whether you know, there are specific devices that actually have misconfigurations. And we all know that getting your basic cyber hygiene right, applying the right updates, ensuring that the misconfigurations are rectified goes a long, long way in preventing against a cyber attack. And then finally, we actually have a new set of classification types. So we have the first thing that I wanted to call out here is context-based classifications. For example, if you put a document now in OneDrive Business or SharePoint in a specific library or a specific site that's deemed sensitive, there's a default site label or there's a default location label that can actually be now applied to that file. And wherever that file goes, the label travels with it. The other very exciting capability is OCR. So applying DLP controls to images. So whether the image is sent out through an email or it's sent out through Teams or it's being egressed from an endpoint device like a Windows device or an iOS device, we can basically perform an optical character recognition on the image, extract the text, and based on that text, determining the sensitivity of that text, the DLP controls can be applied to it accordingly. So lots of exciting capabilities. Welcome to the podcast, Helene. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. 
We'd absolutely love to understand what your specific experience is in the area of critical infrastructure security, which is really top of mind for stakeholders across Australia and New Zealand. Yes, it is. It is now because it is singularly the way that most attacks are happening, not so. I think perception of these attacks really began with the Colonial Pipeline and JBS meat company attacks a little while ago, but now we're more and more aware of it. How did I begin? I like to think that I began, well, it was way back in the 90s when I started learning about electronic law and what it meant in its overarching enabling and facilitating capacity on every other area of life and human behavior. The short answer is that I do this because my clients are in the sector. I work largely with governments and in private sector tier one companies. So they're large environments. Many of them are in the critical infrastructure space. I've done a lot in finance. One worth mentioning, and I must say that I'm very careful about what I say because I do believe in security through obscurity. But one important one here, which is relevant, is the work that I did for the ACCC under Treasury in relation to the CDR platform, specifically several months of work, understanding how that is and how it works and what it is. What are some of the key objectives of the Australian security of critical infrastructure legislation? Well, simply put, it's to protect Australia and it's really to build capacity in the sector. And when I say sector, I mean the entire ecosystem. So it's across all 11 sectors that the SOCI Act applies to. That's the bottom line is to gear everybody up and raise the bar across the entire country. Elaine, with your experience with private customers as well as public sector What are some of the key challenges that businesses face in complying with their legislation? To tell you the truth, the thing that I've seen most consistently, consistently rather, is a lack of knowledge, a sort of fear of what is out there, and people tend to do nothing. So the initial thing is you need to know what's involved. What do you need to do? Are you subject to this legislation in the first place? And that goes to understanding what I call your regulatory universe. And once you've done that, what are the assets do they apply so that you know initially what is required and then you can begin to thread out what you need to do about it to implement that compliance. And building upon that response, how does the legislation actually address the cyber threats to critical infrastructure? Well, we had initially the Security Critical Infrastructure Act of 2018 Then we saw reform begin around 2020. In 2021, we saw promulgation of the First Amendment, and then in 2022, the Second Amendment came into effect. They've got very confusing names, but if we bundle them all together, which is a far more sensible way to look at it, because these are amendments to an existing piece of legislation and the provisions are then built into certain of the sections. But overall... What we're looking at is that SOCI was amended to strengthen the security and resilience of critical infrastructure by expanding the sectors and the asset classes that SOCI applies to. So we now have 11 sectors and 22 different asset classes. So it's far wider. What it seeks to do is raise the bar, as I said just now, and part of that is by having additional positive security obligations for critical infrastructure assets including risk management programs that have to be delivered through sector-specific requirements and mandatory cyber incident reporting. We also have the enhanced cybersecurity obligations for assets of national significance and government assistance where it is required at the higher level of attack. 
So we heard that in February 2023, the Minister of Home Affairs promulgated a raft of new rules. Can you tell us something about those new rules, please? What are the implications of these rules? And how do they fit in with the original legislation? I can, Kenny. So to rephrase that, the risk management program obligations were enacted by the minister and came into effect on the 17th of February 2023, when Minister O'Neill signed the Secure and Critical Infrastructure Rules. And the obligations here are for the identified critical infrastructure entities to produce and to comply with the Critical Infrastructure Risk Management Program, which we call a CRIMP, for asset classes listed in the CRIMP rules. And these are now active. So part of the rules is they've got six months to get this right, to get the risk management program right, and 12 months to uplift the ability to ensure that it's working. So it's pretty fast track. But as I said earlier, we've seen this legislation coming since 2020. So it's not really an excuse. And we've been talking today about critical infrastructure and critical assets. How does the legislation define critical infrastructure? And maybe what are some of the examples you can share with us working with the different organizations around their critical infrastructure assets that are covered by this legislation? Well, it's interesting because the definitions run to pages. You can imagine you've got 11 sectors and then you've got 22 asset classes and their definitions for all of them, and they all interrelate. So you'll have, for example, what is the critical infrastructure sector? And that's where they name the 11 sectors. And then things like what is one of those? You might say it's the transport sector. And then they go into what is a critical public transport sector asset. So it's actually incredibly detailed and it takes quite a bit of time to actually see how they relate. And because there are so many other laws behind this piece of legislation, that gets back to the point where I say that any organization needs to understand what their regulatory universe is, because behind this, you'll have telecommunications law, transport law, you will have state law as well. Remember, we're talking about SOCI as a Commonwealth statute. In addition to that, you've got all the state laws. And currently, my experience is that the states are not fully aware of what they should be doing under the Commonwealth legislation. And the efforts and even going through this call, you've just covered off what are some of the examples of assets and how they relate. But to our audience, the question that we get asked, and I think posing it to yourself, is how does the legislation address supply chain risks to critical infrastructure? They're very specific on that because in terms of the pipeline case and the colonial pipeline and JBS I mentioned earlier, that was part of the problem. Even way back when we had the target attack long ago on what would be retail or one of the sectors now, it was also something in between the supply chain of delivery and service that caused the problem. You know, the chain is as strong as its weakest link. But in SOCI itself, it says the responsible entity must have regard to whether these crimp rules, the lists, actually include all of the major suppliers. And all of those major suppliers need to make sure that they are actually advise the critical infrastructure owner what those risks are. So we're trying to make sure that down that whole line of who's supplying what to whom, there is accountability. I like to think of it rather like in the GDPR, where you have controller and process of relationships. It's a bit like that. If we could introduce that thinking, we would know where the obligations lie and we'd know where the liabilities are. But this is about knowing what's coming, who to talk to, who to prevent. And the law seeks to 
uplift the requirements on the service providers or rather the critical infrastructure providers so that they understand all of these things and they build them into the risks. And Helene, can you provide more clarity on the key compliance deadlines and associated penalties for non-compliance with the legislation? As this is a pretty important concern that a lot of organizations ask about. When I last checked, and I don't think that they've really introduced them yet because all too new, but the maximum penalty is $11,100 for individuals and $55,500 for companies for not reporting a cyber incident to the ASD in time. The same penalties apply for not complying with an order to report critical infrastructure, asset information or entity information to the uh, regulator. And then there are fines of 44,000 for individuals and 220 odd thousands for companies for not adopting these risk management programs. So you mentioned GDPR before, Helene. One of the questions that we actually get to hear quite frequently is, what is the state of the Australian privacy laws? Because obviously, you know, historically, our privacy laws have actually not been as stringent as perhaps something like the GDPR or for that matter, the CCPA. While we have your experience on the call, (laughs) we'd just love to get your insights on whether there's something in the works that'll probably get our privacy laws at par with uh, some of these international standards. Kenny, I hope so. In fact, what happened was when the new government came into power recently this year, they received the report, I think it was early in January, that followed the two years that the previous government had been undergoing this legislative reform under the Attorney General's office. So the report was issued and the new Labour government then allowed for a further period for everybody to go off and have a look and report back again with new submissions. And that second submission date was the 29th of March. So he's got the final report. I'm hoping we're going to see something. It certainly appears that we will move more towards GDPR compliance. I hope that they will accept things like the roles or functions of controller processor, because in terms of what we talk about here now, it's really very useful to understand obligations dependent on the role you play. But I think we're also going to keep a lot of our very peculiar Australian quirks about the law. So, for example, I think we will maintain a threshold. I don't think that we're necessarily going to see the right to be forgotten. I think that we might adopt some of the terminology Hopefully, we will get rid of some of our weird exceptions like an employee record is not not personal information and doesn't deserve protection because, one, it's not true and it's a narrow definition that just creates complications. But I think we're on the brink of it. I've been working with international clients for years. What we do is we localize. So we've got to find, again, some common bar. How do we raise what we do to a level that's acceptable at a global level? Thanks, Elaine. That's music to our ears, and I have no doubt music to the ears of our audience as well. (laughs) So a question for you, Farah. You've been doing a lot of work with the security of critical infrastructure and how the breadth of Microsoft security across threat protection, cloud security, identity and access management, and quite a few other pillars as well, how they can all work together in helping customers address their obligations under the security of critical infrastructure. Can you tell us more about that, please? Yeah, absolutely. Typically, we like to work with organizations and their teams on uplifting their existing risk management program rather than reinventing the wheel with a new approach, focusing only on compliance requirements, as this can be an ineffective and reactive approach. 
And we just heard from Helene as well. The organizations and different teams have six months to form a risk management plan for their critical infrastructure assets and environments and another only 12 months to execute on it. So to build and establish a consistent and comprehensive risk management program, we have to start by identifying the critical assets we are trying to secure. And we also heard from Helene on the importance of identifying these critical assets as this will inform the regulatory requirements that organizations need to comply with. So starting with identifying these critical assets we're trying to secure Then we move into planning and implementing defenses and controls to protect these assets against internal and external attacks, minimizing the likelihood of experiencing a breach. At the same time, organizations have to be able to detect and respond to security incidents and minimize the impact of these incidents on a business and the critical services they provide. So how can Microsoft security solutions help? We work with different teams on addressing these three elements of establishing a risk management program from identifying and classifying their critical assets to applying the right risk treatments and security controls and also detecting and responding to any breaches and incidents. Whether these assets are critical information assets, organizations can leverage Microsoft Purview to discover, classify and label critical information assets as well as apply protection policies, governance policies, and DLP controls. If these assets are cloud workloads and applications could be on-prem infrastructure, they can leverage the Microsoft Defender capabilities for extended detection and response, which helps in discovering these different assets and environments, hardening these critical assets with threat and vulnerability management, which is also one of the obligations of the SOCI Act leveraging attack surface reduction capabilities, and also responding to any detections, alerts, and incidents raised by the XDR platform. And the same applies for IoT and operational technology environments, which we see a lot of focus on within the SOCI Act, and organizations can leverage Defender for IoT and OT for discovery, protection, vulnerability management solutions, as well as detection and response to any threat events. And finally, to help organizations do all of that even more effectively, we work with teams to leverage Microsoft Sentinel, which helps in monitoring the security posture of all these different environments and critical assets we mentioned in a single pane of glass, and also leveraging automation to address any required action. Great. Thank you. There's a lot in there. We'll absolutely have subsequent conversations where we dig a lot deeper into it. But Farah, thank you. Thank you so much for those insights. And that is all we have time for today. A big thanks to our special guest, Helene, and also Farah for joining us. Thanks very much, everyone. Thank you for the opportunity. It was great to be here. You've been listening to Authorized Access, a show about the challenges that businesses face when it comes to cybersecurity. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft ANZ. Microsoft offers a comprehensive set of end-to-end security solutions that span people, devices, apps, and data. For further information, please visit the website, aka.ms slash authorized access. This podcast was made with strategy and production support from Wavelength Creative. To make sure you don't miss an episode of Authorized Access, be sure to subscribe to or follow the show in your podcast app. And while you're there, leave us a five-star review. It really helps others find the show.
I'm Daniel Goffredo. I'm Jess Dodson. And I'm Kenny Singh, and we'll be back next episode with more authorized access. Thank you.